Luke chapter 2, verses 25 and following. This is the Word of God. It has everything that you and I need for life, abundant life, spiritual life, and godliness. Listen reverently as I read to you the Word of the Lord, starting in verse 25 of chapter 2. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up, and began giving thanks to God, and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that you superintend all of history. Um, Lord, nothing uh, occurs that you do not decree, and that is why you can prophesy centuries, even millennia, before an event take place, takes place. You can prophesy the coming of that event, and uh, it's, um, it's taking place is certain, even millennia beforehand, because you are the one who cause all things to fall out the way they do in time and space. We rejoice that um, the coming of the Lord Jesus was something that you had spoken of uh, for a- from ages past, going all the way back to the garden. And we thank you for this passage that reminds us of uh, those messianic prophecies and uh, that points us afresh to Christ. We ask, Lord, as, that as we think on our Savior's birth and um, his uh, very early life, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we all have different needs but that need, all of those needs are ultimately resolved in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, um, who was 
and is the God-man. Would you please cause us to see Jesus afresh in a way that ministers to us, but also that brings honor to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kids, there are uh, lots of uh, situations in life where we have to trust other people. I'll just give you a couple examples. When you get into a car with your mom or your dad or your grandparents or somebody else, another adult driving, you are having to trust someone, namely the driver of that car, that he or she is going to be a good driver and get you safely to wherever you're going. That's an example of trusting somebody, uh, putting your trust in somebody. Also, by the way, when you when food is placed before you that somebody else has prepared, your mom or and you trust your mom, undoubtedly, and her food preparation. But if you go out to a restaurant, you got to trust the cook back in the kitchen. You don't even know that um, you know something bad didn't happen to your food back there before you ate it. Sometimes that doesn't work out so well for some of us. But anyway, you have to trust other people who are preparing your food. And there are, of course, other examples of situations you, where you're having to trust other people. And some people are very worthy of your trust. Your mom, when she cooks your food. Your dad or your mom, when they drive you to the grocery store. But then there are other people who maybe aren't quite so worthy of your trust. I'll give you one example. If your little brother gets behind the wheel of the car and says, hop in, we're going for a ride. Bad idea. You don't want to trust your little, you love your little brother, but you don't trust him behind the wheel of your car. That's not wise. So some people we can trust, some people we can't. Well, this passage, through the things that are said in it, in it, God who is speaking through the scriptures, is calling on all those who read this passage and the rest of the Bible as well to trust in someone who is worthy of our trust. And that someone, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is more worthy of our trust than our parents are, than our pastor is, or elders, or anybody else. Because he is the perfect perfectly trustworthy one, and every other person in your life is not perfectly trustworthy, even your parents. Your parents will let you down sometime. Your grandparents, your pastor, your, uh, your teachers, they will let you down at times because they're imperfect. We are all imperfect, but Jesus is the perfectly trustworthy one, and indeed he is the Savior. That leads me to the four in there. I say four points, but they're fairly Reasonable, reasonable length. The length of my notes isn't any longer than your average sermon in spite of the four points. So just, so they are this. First of all, you need to put your soul trust in the child born to Mary because he is the divinely sent Messiah. Secondly, you need to put your soul trust in the child born to Mary because he is the only source of salvation. Thirdly, you need to put your soul trust in the child born to Mary because He is the consolation of Israel. And then finally, you need to put your soul trust in the child born to Mary because he is the light of the nations. We're going to cover all four of those points in our remaining time together here. So first, you need to put your trust in the child born to Mary, whose name was Jesus, of course, because he is the divinely sent Messiah. 
Now, this event that is recorded here in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 25, it's about 40 days after Jesus, it is actually 40 days after Jesus' birth, so he's been alive for 40 days, Um, and he, his parents have taken him to the temple in Jerusalem, as verse 27 of our text uh, makes clear. And uh, the reason that uh, uh, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to the temple is because of what the Law of Moses taught. The Law of Moses, uh, the first five books called the Torah or the Pentateuch, uh, Christians call it the Pentateuch, uh, the Mosaic Law required uh, uh, women who gave birth uh, to um, require them, where am I here? I've got to find my notes. Um, who gave birth to a baby boy, that's right, who gave birth to a baby boy, required women to offer a sacrifice at the temple. Uh, uh, and this is one of the reasons why Mary uh, and, and Joseph but uh, bring the baby Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice uh, regarding on behalf of the child. But the other reason they brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem was to present him to the Lord um, and... Um, to, in effect, uh, to consecrate him to service to the Lord. And this according was also according to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law required this, that he be consecrated to God uh, in the temple. Uh, a male child was to be. Well, while they are there, while they're in the temple precincts, God prompts a man named Simeon to come to the temple, and to bump into, it wasn't random, it was, it was uh, planned by the Lord, of course, but to bump into and see Jesus. Actually, he gave Simeon a heads up that the, that the Messiah was going to be present there, and so he leads Simeon to the temple to meet his Savior, uh, who is a baby boy that Mary and Joseph were uh, bringing to the temple. And we read of that in verse 26, verses 25 and 6, I'll read it again. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit, in other words, the Spirit was leading him into the temple, and then he sees Mary and Joseph, and the baby Jesus. So this is the background. And what he, uh, notice what I read there in verse 26, he is referred to by Luke as the Lord's Christ. What does that mean? The Lord's Christ. Well, most of you who have been here for a while know that Christos, from which we get the word Christ, uh, the Greek word Christos means anointed one, or one who has been anointed. And uh, it is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which also means anointed one, from which we get the word Messiah. So whenever you say Christ, you're saying Messiah, in effect, just uh, in, uh, in the, the um, anglicizing of the Greek word for that, uh, that word. And so this is the Messiah who is being carried into the temple. And Simeon knows this. This is the Messiah. And he is described there as the Lord's Christ. The Lord's, God's Messiah. Meaning the one who belongs to God. The one who is from God. The one who is being sent by God. 
That is the one who is in the temple uh, as a baby, uh, a little baby child. Um, And let's consider for a minute here, as we uh, ponder this concept of the Messiah being the Messiah, Jesus, what a first century Jew should have known, not all of them did, many of them didn't in fact, but what they should have known based on the Old Testament scriptures about the coming of this Messiah. Okay, so I'm going to rattle off several verses here. I'm going to look quickly at them, and uh, some of them I'm just going to read in part, but uh, some I'm going to read all uh, the Old Testament texts that apply. But what a first century Jew should have known about the Messiah and his coming was, first of all, he should have known what we read this morning, what, uh, that uh, Bill read in Isaiah 9, that the Messiah was to be a human being. So in Isaiah 9, it starts out, For a child will be born to us. A human child. So the Messiah was going to be a human being. The text also, that same text, later in that verse, refers to him as mighty God. He is going to be truly man, but he is also going to be truly God. Uh, he's called, the Lord is our righteousness, and the Lord is Yahweh our righteousness. This is uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 6 that I'm quoting, which is another verse that points to, that pointed Old Testament believers to the fact that the Messiah, the son of David, was going to be the Lord himself, God himself, Yahweh himself. This Messiah was going to be worthy of worship. Over in Psalm chapter 2, in uh, the very second, the second verse of that psalm, he is referred to as the anointed. Uh, remember, the, the rulers of the, uh, are going to take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed, against his Messiah. Mashiach is the word that is used there. And then later in that verse, in verse 12, that Messiah is identified as the Son. Verse 12 of Psalm chapter 2, Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. And it goes on. So he is that homage there is worship. And so the Son, the, the Anointed One, the Messiah, was to be worshipped. And a good Jew, a good student of the Scriptures uh, of the, in, the, uh, in Jesus' day, would have and should have known that fact. He was going to be worshipped. Why? Because he's God. That's why. He was also, the Old Testament scriptures made clear, going to be a righteous king. This is over in the, that messianic psalm, that famous messianic psalm, Psalm 110, where we read in verse 1 and 2, uh, this is a psalm of David. David wrote it, and he says, The Lord says to my Lord. So David has two lords here. The first Lord is Yahweh, uh, undistinguished uh, by his persons, but then the second one is Yahweh incarnate, the Lord Jesus. So the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Unquote. And then we read, the Lord will stretch forth thy strong scepter from Zion, that is the Messiah's strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies, pointing to his kingship, the Messiah's kingship. He was also not only going to be a righteous king, he was going to be a great, or the, rather, great high priest who serves perpetually. Again from Psalm 110, but now down to verse 4. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, 
quote, Thou art a priest forever, thou the Messiah, art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that's the same one who is the king back in verses 1 and 2, whom the Lord made king. So he is going to be uh, fully man, uh, truly man, truly God. He's going to be worthy of worship. He's going to be the righteous king. He's going to be the great high priest. He's also going to be, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, the servant of the Lord. Although we didn't read Psalm, uh, Isaiah 49 this morning, but I will, verses 5 and 6, where we read this about the Messiah. And now says the Lord, again, that's Yahweh there. Uh, uh, now says the Lord, who formed me, this is Jesus actually talking uh, uh, in a pre-incarnate um, record here. And now, says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. That is about Messiah. He would be the servant of the Lord who would not only bring salvation to Israel, but would bring salvation to all the nations. Isaiah 53, a few chapters later, makes the point that the Messiah would bear the guilt of the sins of others. An Old Testament saint, an Old Testament Jew rather, uh, should have known this from his, uh, from his scriptures and having the scriptures read to him in the synagogue and in the temple. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, they would have read this, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But... He was pierced through for our transgressions. Very Pauline language here. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused, here it is, the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The Old Testament Jews should have known that. That Messiah was going to do that for them. Indeed, they were saved by believing that promise, promises similar to it, that Messiah would, he would be the one who would accomplish and bring about and had in fact brought about already, uh, provisionally, their salvation. Their right standing before God, even in, the, even in the Old Testament age. And then finally, learning again from the same Isaiah passage, 53, verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, that the Messiah would be punished by God in the place of sinners and would thereby reconcile those same sinners to God. Let me read Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. But the Lord was pleased, that is to say, the triune God was pleased to crush him, that is to say, the Messiah, the God-man, the Messiah. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his, Messiah's soul, he, God, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify, there it is, the many, as he will bear their iniquities. And it goes, the text goes on and makes the uh, same point. All of these things, a, an observant and listening Jew 
because most of them had to listen. They didn't have their own copies of the Bible like we do with ink on a page. But they would listen, and they should have known from what they had read weekly uh, to them that this was the case about the coming Messiah. And Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is that anointed king, that anointed priest of God, who is truly God and truly man and the only savior of sinners because he bore their guilt and was punished by God in the sinner's place who would put their trust in him. This is why his being the Messiah should prompt you, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, to trust him. This is one of the reasons. Because he's the only way. Because he, he is the only person, human being in history, who is capable of mediating between the infinite God who made you and the finite, uh, and finite man uh, such as yourself. A finite man such as yourself or woman or child. Because he is God. And he is fully human and truly human as well. That's the reason he can mediate effectively between these two uh, um, alienated parties prior to becoming you becoming a Christian. We were alienated from God. God is holy. We are sinful. And only a mediator can breach that gulf, that moral gulf, uh, and that, um, that, that um, estrangement that is there between those two parties because he is both parties. He has the nature of both God and man, yet he is a perfect man because he is also God. And so therefore, he's the only one who can save you from your sins. You are all sinners. I am a sinner. We all deserve to go to hell, and we will for all eternity suffer the torments of hell unless we have this mediator who was that baby that day in the temple. Secondly, you need to put your soul trust in the child born to Mary, not only because he is the divinely sent Messiah, but because he is the only source of salvation. I'm kind of repeating myself, but the text does it too, so we're going to. Verse 30 makes this point of Luke. He says, uh, back up to verse 29, these are Simeon's words as he's holding Jesus in his arms. And he's blessing God, and he says, verse 29, Now, Lord, thou hast let thy bondservant, meaning Simeon himself, depart in peace. Thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace, according to thy word. And then he says this in verse 30, For my eyes have seen thy salvation. He's looking at Jesus as he's saying this. He's calling Jesus his or God's salvation as he's looking at the baby in his arms. You and I, all of us here, our parents, grandparents, as many generations as you want to go back all the way to Adam and Eve. Uh, Actually, this isn't true of Adam and Eve, but it's true of everybody else. We have all been conceived uh, as and born as enemies of God. David, in Psalm 51.5, says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's true of David, and it's true of every last one of us. We were all conceived in sin and born as enemies of God because of it, on account of our rebellious hearts with which we were conceived, and also on account of the countless sins that have poured forth from those that rebellious heart of ours uh, since we were conceived. God is a holy God. He's an infinitely holy God. Not just is he infinitely morally perfect, which is what holiness means, as I use it there, 
but he is also infinitely just, a God who must punish all, de- all uh, law-breaking, all rebellion against him. He must punish it, or he ceases to be just and he ceases to be God. And his perfect justice, again, demands that all deviations be punished. This is what hell is, folks. It is the place where God's judicial wrath uh, against sin, his justice, is poured out uh, upon those who are guilty. And it is poured out for all eternity. And there isn't one of us in this room, or listening to my voice, if you're not in this room right now, um, There isn't one of us in this room or in the world for that matter or whoever's been in the world, save Jesus, who doesn't deserve to go to hell for all eternity. We all deserve that. Do you believe that, by the way? You better. It's true. You may not like it, but you better believe it. We all deserve it. And the Bible makes it perfectly clear that there isn't a thing you or I can do to appease God's perfect justice. His infinite justice. There's nothing we can do to deliver ourselves or help deliver ourselves from the wrath of God in hell. Nothing. No one has the ability to to do anything to start to undo that horrible uh, fate that would otherwise be ours unless we do something about it, which I'm going to get to here. We are utterly helpless to save ourselves. That's the bad news. But of course, the gloriously good news or, uh, is that there is someone who can save us from our otherwise inevitable and hellish deserts in hell. And that someone, of course, is the baby whom Simeon was holding in his arms, the divinely appointed and anointed Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, the only Savior of sinners, the only possible way that a sinner can escape the wrath of God, the judicial just wrath of God, is by looking to the Savior whom he has appointed, whom... whom, um, Simeon called thy salvation. And again, he's the only source of salvation because he's the Messiah. The only one who can possibly save sinners. And not just possibly, but does save sinners. He's the only source. As we, I, I read it, but I'm going to reread it again uh, in Isaiah 15, uh, 49, rather, where he says there, uh, again, in verses 5 and 6, um, I'll just read verse 6. He, verse 5, he said, uh, says to the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. And then down in verse 6, he, the Lord, says... It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that, and here it is, my salvation, meaning in you, Messiah, Christ, may reach to the ends of the earth. But notice it's God's salvation 
that reaches to the ends of the earth through the servant, through the work, the person and work of the servant, who is the Messiah. The reason Jesus is able to save sinners such as ourselves is precisely because of what Luke says about him back in Luke chapter 2, verse 38. He calls him the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is another word, way of saying the redemption of Israel, which is another way of saying the redemption of the church down through the ages. He is the redemption. He is the redeemer. He's the only one who can do, who can buy us back from the wrath, the, ju- the justice of God, so that the justice of God can be satisfied, so it's not poured out on us, but rather on Him. A little wrath going on outside there right now. He, the Messiah, bore the guilt of our sins, of the sins of all those sinners whom God wished to, who willed to save. Yes, that's the elect. If you don't like it, Scripture speaks that way. Because Jesus, as our substitute, bearing the guilt of our sins, was punished for our sins because God saw our sins on Christ and therefore reacted with judicial wrath and punished Him, satisfying the demands of God's justice on behalf of all those who would look to Him in faith, redeeming them from that justice. Some... some the church fathers used to believe that uh, Jesus redeemed uh, the believer from the devil, paid the devil. That's nonsense. It's utter nonsense. He paid himself, is what he did. His, his love paid his justice. And we are the beneficiaries if you are looking to Christ alone for your salvation. And He must be your Savior and your Lord. Because that's what He is. For all those who belong to Him, He is Savior and Lord. And if you don't put your trust in Him as your Savior and Lord and Him alone, you will be forced to pay your debt to God's justice yourself, and you will spend eternity paying it in hell and never paying it off. Because your debt is infinite. My debt is infinite. Because God was infinitely offended by every sin that we have committed. That's why you need to put your trust in Him as your only source of salvation. You also need to put your trust in the child born to Mary, because he is the consolation of Israel. He's described that way in verse 25, uh, the very first verse of our text. Uh, Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. We need to keep in mind what he means, what uh, uh, Luke, who's writing this, means, and the Holy Spirit, by the Israel. Here, Israel is not referring to the ethnic nation, Here, Israel is referring to those who are truly in covenant with Christ. The Israel within Israel that Paul spoke of over in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 and following. Those who put their sole trust in God's Messiah for their 
justification for their forgiveness of their sins and their acceptance uh, from God and all those who do that down through the ages. In other words, believers are the true Jews. Believers in Jesus. Paul makes this point over in Romans chapter 2. He says in verses 28 and 29, For it is not a Jew who is one outwardly, merely outwardly exhibiting signs of Judaism, circumcision and so forth. Neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. This is the Israel who are, is to be and will be consoled by the coming of the Messiah. And why is someone who is of Israel, the true Israel, uh, who is circumcised in the heart, why is he consoled? Because comfort comes from knowing you're forgiven. That God is no longer your enemy. Right? The fires of God's wrath are no longer upon you. There's no greater comfort than that. There should be no greater comfort to you than that. Your sins have been, if you're a believer in Christ, your sins have been removed uh, uh, from from you. Uh, the, The condemnation that was upon you because of your sins that you once stood under is gone. You have been, your pardon has been purchased by the work of Christ and he has cleansed you from all the guilt of your sins. You've been reconciled to God who once viewed you as an arch enemy and you viewed him as an arch enemy, by the way, during that pre-Christ life of yours. Um, And he has given you the certainty, the absolute certainty of spending eternity in God's blessed, loving, heavenly presence and you seeing him as you behold Christ the triune God in the, in the face of uh, the second person enthroned. It is all yours rather than what you deserve, which is the exact opposite of that. And I deserve. Isaiah speaks of the comfort, the consolation, they mean the same thing, console to comfort. Um, Isaiah speaks of this comfort that the Messiah would bring to God's people as a result of his coming. Again, this is Isaiah, the Gospel of Isaiah, as it is often called uh, by, uh, not often, but is sometimes called by people who have read it. Um, Isaiah 52, verses 9 and 10. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is spiritual Jerusalem here. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Not all peoples, but his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God in the Messiah who brings comfort to those who had none prior to being forgiven by him. That's the third reason that you should put your trust, soul trust, in the child born to Mary. Um, And then the final reason offered by the text, in addition to his being the divinely sent Messiah, the the only source of salvation and the consolation of Israel, is because he is the light of 
the, uh, the nations or the Gentiles, as that word can be translated. This is found in verse 32. Again, in Simeon's prayer, he says, he refers to uh, Jesus as um, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Light here, as uh, he is quoting, by the way, from uh, Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verse 2, and also alluding to chapter 42, verse 6, uh, that phrase, light of revelation to the Gentiles or to the nations. Um, light is a metaphor, of course, uh, for spiritual life, spiritual knowledge, spiritual joy and blessedness. The Gentiles uh, uh, are the nations of whom uh that, that uh, the Isaiah texts are speaking of and that uh, Simeon is, uh, is quoting, the Gentiles or the nations are all non-Jews. Anybody who's not a biological descendant of uh, Jacob is being referred to here uh, when he speaks of the nations. And that's the vast majority of the world's population back then and also, by the way, now, Right? Prior to the coming of Christ, Gentiles, non-Jews, were largely, not so completely, but largely passed over by God in the saving operations of his spirit. Now this providentially had to do with Israel's very poor job that we talked about in Sunday school of proclaiming uh, the God of Israel to the nations and being a good example to the nations so they'd want the God of Israel. They weren't a good example. But God in his providence uh, wove all that into his decrees, and uh, the, the, the Gentiles uh, of old were largely passed over by God uh, in, in the work of salvation. They were, as a group, collectively lost in spiritual darkness, in sin, ignorance, misery, and death. So, when Simeon here, in Luke chapter 2, refers to the baby Jesus as a light of revelation to the nations or to the Gentiles, he was declaring that Jesus, the Christ, would be the one responsible for dissipating the Gentile world's spiritual darkness. He would accomplish that dissipation of that darkness. And, in fact, did so 30 years plus from the point that's being described here uh, in Luke 2. He did this by atoning for the sins of countless yet-to-be-converted Gentiles in that day. And he did this by directing also, not only by atoning for the sins of Gentiles, but then by directing the New Testament church, preeminently the Apostle Paul, but also all the church, to proclaim the good news of God's salvation to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. To go out to the Gentile nations and proclaim it as Israel failed to do in the old, uh, under the old Mosaic administration. And the fact that Jesus is the, is the light of revelation to the Gentiles should prompt you folks listening to me or in this room to trust in It's another reason that you should trust in him. Because I'm pretty sure there isn't one person here this morning who isn't a Gentile. 
think there are any of you that have Jewish blood that I'm aware of. And the fact that the Bible refers to Jesus as the light of revelation to the Gentiles means he clearly intends to save Gentiles like you and me. And he will save every Gentile and Jew who lays hold of him, the Lord Jesus, by faith alone, trusting in him alone to rescue them from the wrath of God to forgive their sins, and to reconcile them to God. Are you a Gentile who hasn't yet but wishes to be forgiven of your sins? To be reconciled to a God who is currently your enemy and wishes to go to heaven rather than to hell when you die? The message is very simple. Put your soul trust in Jesus of Nazareth, who is truly God, truly man, the king of all those who put their trust in him, and the high priest of all those who put their trust in him, and yes, the sacrifice that accomplishes their forgiveness before God. But you must trust in him alone. And again, if you have already done this, as most of you in this room, if not all, have, I'm pretty sure, revel in what you have. God has been exceedingly gracious to you. Live like that's true this week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you.